0: Here at Lady Farmer, we talk about so many different aspects of slow and sustainable living, a subject matter that can at times feel confusing, overwhelming, even misleading. And that's why a few years ago, we set out to write a book that might be a guide for those seeking a life of beauty, simplicity, and sustainability.
1: We're thrilled to be able to offer you our own small guide for cultivating slow living, Sustainable Simplicity Close to Home available in our online marketplace. In the book, we've woven an easy-to-digest narrative of stories, recipes, tips, resources, ideas, and reflection. This collection of essays and resources will guide you to think about your own relationship to the planet, what you eat, what you wear, and how you live a sustainable lifestyle. It also contains a 21-day slow-living challenge of daily thought exercises to lead you in the process. For you Good Dirt listeners, we are offering free shipping of this wonderful little book with the
0: code The Good Dirt in our online marketplace. So use the code The Good Dirt, T H E G O O D D I R T, at checkout when you go to purchase your copy of The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living in our online marketplace for free shipping. That's The Good Dirt at The Lady Farmer Online Marketplace for free shipping on The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living. We hope you enjoy it.
2: Thanks, everybody. People with similar earning potential to mine say, but I need the cheap thing because otherwise I can't afford it. And I say yes and no, because that cheap thing is keeping you poor.
0: You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty-gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts,
1: Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this
0: podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world, as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live
1: into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now, the farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with
0: us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hi, Mom. Do you want to talk about some of our Plastic Free July fails for the week? Yeah, I think we should. Yeah, we had lunch together last week, and we were out, and we ate lunch at a place. We sat there and ate it outside, and I had brought my coffee cup for iced coffee. And I ordered iced coffee, and I said, can you put it in this cup? And I wasn't sure if they were going to do that, because, you know, during the pandemic, they hadn't been doing that, but... They gladly filled my cup with iced coffee, and that was lovely. And then when the food came out, they also brought out a plastic cup of iced coffee. (laughs) I think whoever had put in the order, you know, just put in the (laughs) order, and then someone else filled it. So we ended up with two coffees, but one of them was in a plastic cup. So it's like even if you
1: really, really try, sometimes you just just get handed plastic anyways. (laughs) Yeah, and... The food was all in supposedly compostable containers, and even the utensils had compostable printed on them. So I was thinking, okay, but then when we were done and had gathered up everything to take inside so we could compost the compostables, the girl inside said, oh, just put those out there in the recycling bin.
0: Yeah. And then the recycling bin was really just a
1: trash can even though it was blue. It was very confusing. Yeah. So basically what we'd just done was have an entire meal using single-use containers, cups, and utensils. And I call that a plastic-free July fail. <laughs> yeah, we, it was not
0: plastic-free. I think a common misconception is that if this stuff says compostable, then people think it will break down in the trash, But as we know from our conversation with Lauren from WorldCentric a couple of episodes ago, that is not true. Those items have to go through a very specific process to break down. And the way the system is set up currently is that the consumer is responsible for having it separated and sent to the right facility or it becomes trash. And what we talk about in that episode is in that moment when you are a consumer who has a pile of compostable things in front of you and you want to do the right thing with them, but there is nothing to do with that thing. It makes it really hard. So yeah, we're hoping that there can be some more top-down change there. So it's not all on the shoulders of the person at the end of the chain (laughs) to deal with it.
1: Right. And in a situation like that, where, you know, If we really wanted to absolutely not use plastic, then we wouldn't be able to eat there. And that, you know, we don't want to go there. I I wonder how many restaurant owners and employees actually realize this about the compostables. They probably spend extra money on the compostables and it ends up being a waste, literally a waste. So anyway, that's our not very fun story about how even when you are really trying sometimes you can't get around it but as always it's a good learning it's eye opening it helps you decide you know what you're going to do and what your choices are going to be in the future yeah and also i don't even think it's the
0: well i guess partial responsibility to the restaurant owners who get the compostable things that they know that they have a a way to deal with it. But I really actually want to put the responsibility above them to the people who are selling these compostable products. I'm sure that they say, and everyone knows these need to be composted in a composting facility, but where is that check mark that's actually making sure that that's happening? So I don't think it exists. And I think that it's just, you're right, mom, people, the restaurants are probably spending more money on something that says compostable, because it just makes everyone feel better. Yeah. When really it's not doing anything. So I think it's a very sneaky greenwashing that
1: we are all subject to. I guess the good news is that the technology is there. It just needs to be refined. The systems and the processes down the line. So I guess that's a start. (laughs) And there is beginning to be some consciousness out there, you know, consumers thinking, oh, well, this is a good thing, compostables. But everybody across the board needs to know that these things don't compost in the trash. They need oxygen. Landfills are infamously packed. And it's not the right circumstances for these things to go away, even though we would like to think they do, but they don't.
0: Yeah. Well, That is a problem to be solved another day. (laughs) We can't solve it here. Just sharing our own struggles with this. But moving forward today, it all really ties in nicely with today's episode, our conversation with Heidi Barr of Kitchen Garden Textiles. And this conversation was so fun because it was a nice pivot from problems to solutions.
1: Yes, Kitchen Garden Textiles grew from Heidi's desire to make sustainable textiles more accessible. And to help all of us with our zero waste kitchen goals.
0: Heidi makes all of the textiles in her studio in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia with organic 100% natural linen, reducing reliance on single use and plastic disposables with elegant linen products for
1: gathering, storing, preparing, and serving food. And guess what? I got my order from them this week. And I made the coffee this morning with the linen cone filter. And I love it. And especially no more tossing the paper ones. It's great. I can't wait to try the bread bags that she talks about. And a portion of their profits go to regenerative farms to help reestablish a regenerative regional textile supply. And they've got their own flax to linen production project going in Pennsylvania, which we'll touch on today. But we look forward to talking about that more in depth in a future episode. We really enjoyed this lively discussion with Heidi. She's inspirational and uh, we hope you enjoyed as well. Hi Heidi, thank you for joining us here today. We'll get started here by having you tell us something of your story and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, and what is a kitchen garden series? Yes.
2: Right. So the kitchen garden series in 5 days is becoming kitchen garden textiles. I'm changing my business name, which has been a long time coming, but feels all of a sudden to me. And I will also have a beautiful new website. Um, this is kind of a great moment to sort of talk about how I got where I am. In I like to say in some ways, it's like a really long convoluted story. And in other ways, it all makes perfect sense. I grew up in Oregon in the 70s. And I, from the beginning was an environmentalist because that was the first wave environmental movement was so strong there. So everything I've done has always had this sort of environmental thread to it. And I also grew up next door to a woman who took in monograms for a living. And I learned to sew from her. And she was one of my favorite people in the world. So I've always had this really sweet spot for the needle crafts, oh. the, one of my happy places. you know. And then I became a dancer. So I had this whole first career in dance. It's all my formal training is in dance. I like to tell people, you know, dance is a visual art. It is about designing the space the same way that designing textiles is. And it's also about the functionality of design, this sort of being able to do something complicated and clearly communicate it. And I feel like that is what kitchen garden textiles are. They are an expression of a very complex idea in the simplest, most accessible form I can make them. And then I also, my mother comes from a family of farmers. So I have this familial history of agriculture that's just in my blood. And when I moved to Philadelphia, I was no longer dancing. I had started costume designing. So I had sort of wed those two interests, right? Dance and sewing. And I got really disillusioned with the amount of waste that is produced in costuming. You put a lot of effort into making something that is used for sometimes only a weekend and then it's stored indefinitely. And at about that same time, I moved to the neighborhood I'm in, which is two miles away from an urban farm with a CSA. And I became a working shareholder on that farm. And I just thought, there must be some way that my skill as a textile designer can support this incredible movement of growing food in the city and feeding my community. And that's where the idea for Kitchen Garden Textiles came from. I've just run with it since then. I've just basically unspooled the thread and just followed my curiosity about every aspect of the business. And that's how I got here.
0: Yes. Yeah, that's wonderful. Also, if anyone is a regular listener of The Good Dirt, you've <laughs> heard this many times. And we have this connection with so many guests, but I'm also a dancer. And so I, many people that we've brought on are dancers. That's so funny. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I love it. I think dance actually prepares us for many things in life. <laughs> yeah.
0: And it's like, it takes a sensitive empath, all these things that I think also align with like environmentalists, like people who care about the environment answer There's a lot of overlap.
1: It's probably an Enneagram type or something. Yeah. <laughs> so there were so many lady farmer tie-ins, you know, the handwork, the textiles, the farming, this CSA investment, the wanting to know where your food comes from, all those things. So And wanting to recognize what your current
0: gifts are and how you can serve the community and the way that it's serving you.
1: That's so beautiful. And also... We love the whole topic of the urban farm, too. Like, you know, we tell our lady farmers, you don't have to live on a farm. You can do a lot with a windowsill.
2: (laughs) You can. It's really optimistic to me what a really strong um, network of urban growers exists in Philadelphia. Like, there are growers who have been growing for decades in the city, just on vacant lots. You know, and they start growing because... They need food, (laughs) Right. right? It's the simplest human need. And they're just like vacant lots that have gorgeous soil on them because there have been decades of not defined as, but definitely organic agriculture, right? Just traditional agricultural methods that all different cultures, like Philly is such a diverse city. So there's all these different cultures that are just growing food because they need it. And there's a lot of vacant land in Philadelphia, sort of a both a positive and a negative. It's a result of being one of the poorest big cities in the country that there's just a lot of dilapidated buildings that have been knocked down. And so they're just vacant lots. But people have just in this really beautiful, resilient way, you know, taken over that space to feed themselves and to feed their families. And it was really exciting for me to discover here. What is Kitchen Garden Textiles? It's my environmental project. It's interesting because kitchen garden textiles is definitely more than one thing. It is on its surface. It is a line of textiles that are ethically manufactured in Pennsylvania and designed to replace single use and plastic disposables in home kitchens and in restaurants, right? So it's linen textiles designed to be used directly with food, whether that's Serving it, storing it, preparing it, growing it. They're all things for the kitchen and the garden. So on its surface, and when you land on the website, that's what you see pictures of. If you scratch the surface, you'll see that really it's an idea. It's this idea that food storage and preparation can be moved out of the carbon Cycle. It it doesn't have to be petroleum based. It doesn't have to involve plastics and synthetic fabrics. It doesn't have to involve much garbage, although there's a lot of compost there. And that it also can be a crop. Like, so all of my textiles are plant based textiles, like 99% is linen. The rest is reclaimed cotton, but the textiles and agriculture weren't separate until fairly recent human history. And that separation has been catastrophic. So the kitchen garden textiles is this idea that you can reconnect textiles to the kitchen in a more quotidian way, in a more functional way, and that you can take textile production out of an oil well and back into a diversified, sustainable, regenerative farming system.
1: Early on, one of our early lady farmer messages and still one of our messages is that clothing is an agricultural product. And people would go, whoa, yeah, never thought of it that way. And so, yeah, well, unless it comes from a, you know, an animal like wool or alpaca or whatever, it comes from a plant. And then you can think about it kind of like
0: those sheep and alpaca are, what are they? How, what's nourishing them? Plants. Yeah. It's all so yeah, growing from the earth.
1: So, yeah, it's really a... A concept that takes you way deeper down. I really appreciate as, as someone
0: else who's working to move this idea out into the world. I think it's really smart and interesting. I don't know if you did this on purpose, but like you said, it kind of makes sense. So it probably wasn't on purpose, but it makes total sense that you are so focused on the kitchen and the food aspect of it. Because from our perspective, we talk mostly about clothing and we started as a sustainable apparel company, but it's so hard to talk about one thing without talking about everything else, but it's mm. so I think it's like really clear and digestible for lack of a better word to just like really focus on the, the food and the kitchen and that relationship with textiles. It's super cool. And food storage is something that we talk about all the time, at least personally. I don't know how much we've talked oh, about it on here, yes. but oh,
1: it's such a big and it's a big been s- thing, so hijacked mm-hmm. by the petroleum it, industry. It is. And it's kind of a joke in my marriage. We don't agree on food storage techniques. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we both kind of grew up in the 60s and 70s back when, you know, plastic was king, you know, to put your food away. And so there's a lot of unlearning there. So I want to read something from your blog that really jumped out to me and that I think is really cool. You said, the systems for getting textiles into our hands can be systems of renewal or systems of destruction. I want to build a business community that works to make renewal the norm. You know, I love that because you are turning the dial a little bit. I think in the past generation, convenience has been the norm. If we can just shift that to where people are willing to look at all this a little bit differently. This is not the most convenient thing, but it is about renewal. So I thought you might want to talk about that a little bit.
2: Yeah, that's so interesting. Well, it's urgent. There's an urgent need to make renewal the norm. And renewal is the norm within like all of the systems of nature, within ecosystems. And it's urgent that we begin to understand as humans that we are part of those ecosystems and not apart from them. Extractive Systems are finite, right? You can only extract so much before it's gone. So, just sort of working to shift a way of thinking. And for me, like this process, it really started in a big way when I started this business, which I'm entering my ninth year of business now. So, I wasn't doing all of these things in year one, right? I was making napkins out of the backs of shirts to support a farm in year one. It was really that simple. And now, I think about renewal, not only in terms of the products that I'm using, but in terms of the way I conduct business, how people are paid, what my profit margins are, the longevity and the business end of it, as well as the products. And I look to sort of the systems of nature to inform that. And I think that I know that I'm really fortunate to be part of a business community of people who are thinking the same way in fashion and in food, even in other house goods. And it's a systemic change that we're working for. So it's big and sometimes it's overwhelming, but it's also, there is a lot of beauty in it. I know in my own home, Over the past nine years, as I've made the shift to only bringing things in that come from systems of renewal, so I try to only bring in sustainable, regenerative. I know most of the people that produce most of the things I bring into my home. Not 100%. I don't want to sit here and say I'm perfect. I'm definitely not perfect. But as I start making that change, my quality of life is better. Things taste better. Things feel better. I have a fondness for the things in my life because they're connected to people. And that's what that looks like. That's what that can look like. And my work here is done if I've convinced people that it can look like that. Right. Because it also looks like cleaner air and cleaner water and continued life on the planet.
1: But I think when we go there, you know, people, they get, desensitized to like, oh, yeah, 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 clean air, clean water, blah, blah, blah. Unfortunately. But I like your reframing of the issue. Instead of saying, stop using plastic. Plastic is so bad. You've said, choose products that are regenerative, that stand for renewal, that support renewal. And I really love What you said, I don't know if these were your exact words, but renewal is the norm in nature. Mm -hmm. It is. That's very exciting to me. I also, something that you
0: said just now made me think, having a fondness for most of the things in your home because they're connected to people. I relate to that so much because Mm. this is not the first time we're saying this, but most of us have too much stuff and we're affected by our stuff. I think most people are kind of understanding that now, but we've been on a similar journey to you probably in the past decade. And I mean, there's always things in my house I can continue to get rid of. But the things that I have acquired since having this shift of really caring about where things come from, I feel similarly. I have a fondness for things. My things make me happy, (laughs) which is a really fun way to be instead of kind of oppressed by the, the material things around you. And then what you said, mom, about convenience. We'd say this all the time about sort of it's not convenient, but what if we just sort of like decided that convenience was a different thing? (laughs) And we did that instead of saying it's not convenient. What if we said, okay, but who's it convenient for? And for how long? Mm -hmm. Because usually it's convenient for about 0.5 seconds in the moment. But if we have any sort of like zoomed out perspective, Mm -hmm. it's not convenient. (laughs) I'll give you a great example
1: of that. When you're out traveling or whatever, and you, you know, you forgot to bring your go cup or whatever, and you really need something to drink. So you say, okay. And you get the single use thing Mm -hmm. because that's convenient. And you, you have this immediate need, but if you are sensitized to, you know, the implications of that single use plastic thing, later on, you're looking at that and saying, what do I do with this? And it hurts. (laughs) Even if you're
0: not super sensitized to it. We just went on a road trip to visit my grandparents. And because, you know, places aren't doing really reusable cups still yet. And we drink a lot of coffee. And like the amount of times we stopped and it's amazing. Just there's just two of us and that we had to empty, you know, three, four coffee cups. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, that's like that's (laughs) not convenient. (laughs) It's taking up space
1: in your car. Yeah, Right.
2: I think sometimes people overlook that just because something is different doesn't mean it's inconvenient. Like when I made the switch to storing all of my produce in linen, and I store all of my produce in linen now, unless I buy micro radish sprouts in those little plastic clamshell things that I can't resist, So, but pretty much everything else. And when I tell people, you know, when I feel like in fabric, you just, you get it damp and you put the greens in and you close it and it stays fresh twice as long, literally. Okay. Like, so first of all, A, I'm not throwing away my food. It's staying fresh twice as long. I don't have to go shopping as often. Mm, That's convenient. Right. And it's actually like, once you make the change, it's not hard. It's the deciding to make the change and like learning a slightly new system that is, maybe uncomfortable for a moment, but once you've gotten to the other side of it, it's just now a part of your routine. And I find that I have less stuff, which means I have less stuff to take care of, which means it takes less time to take care of it. And I have more time to do things that are better than that. (laughs) (laughs) Great way to
1: put it like taking out heaps of trash every week. So it can be picked up Mm -hmm. and
2: And cleaning out the garbage can and all that i mean who
1: wants to do that anyway <laughs> i want to go back to you know you storing your produce in linen i want to hear about that i you know we go to a csa and we at lady farmer has organic cotton mm-hmm. produce bags and we i use those a lot and i also have like the little netted bags mm-hmm. that i've collected various places and have come to realize that these different fabrics and constructions do have an effect on how well the food keeps. So, for instance, the salad greens do not keep in that netted bag even one day. They shrink up considerably. You know, even even when you put it in the fridge. I don't know what it is about those. I don't know if the cotton fibers actually extract the moisture out of it or I don't know, but that didn't work at all. But the little cotton canvas bag seemed to work okay, but I want to hear about linen for produce storage. I don't have any linen. I'm going to get some from you. You need to try this.
2: You know, for me, it was an experiment (laughs) and I'm very happy with the results. (laughs) So linen, the fiber itself has antibacterial qualities. It's a residual left from the plant, which is really, really cool that something that's in the plant, after all of the processing it goes through to become fabric, still retains this antibacterial quality that was in the original
1: Oh, it's like just magic. Awesome.
2: Yeah. Really awesome. So that is why it was traditionally used in the kitchen and the bathroom and the bedroom, right? Because it has this antibacterial quality. So it keeps things fresh longer because it inhibits the growth of bacteria, which is what makes things rot. So for me with the linen, with greens, you get the fabric damp and you put the greens in the damp fabric and you want to make sure that it's wrapped around whatever you're storing completely you don't want the air from the refrigerator to come in contact with your greens because that wilts it it sort of like burns it in a way Mm -hmm. so you get the fabric damp and you enclose your greens in it and pop it either in the crisper drawer or the regular part of the refrigerator and as long as you keep that fabric damp it'll keep your greens fresh If the fabric dries out, I just take it out. I just run it under the sink because I'm way too lazy to dump the greens out and get the bag damp and put them back in. So I just run it under the sink and deal with the fact that it drips on the way back to the fridge. (laughs) And um, as long as you keep it damp, like I have kept a head of lettuce in one of those bags for almost three weeks. No, no. Yeah. It's insane how long it will stay fresh if you keep the bag down. Oh my
1: gosh. gosh, I'm already a convert.
2: I mean, I'm going to say like you lose some of the outer leaves and maybe I should have eaten it after like two weeks, but it was sort of, I wanted to see how long it would go. And for other things like mushrooms, where you want them dry, you just put it in a dry linen bag and I just leave those on the shelf in the refrigerator and then... Eventually they, if you don't use them right away, they will dry out, but then you just have dried mushrooms. They don't spoil. Hmm, yeah. They don't get slimy. They don't go bad. Even with bread on the counter, if I put it like a good mm. loaf of bread, a real fresh loaf of bread from a baker that's got live stuff in it, right? I get that. I put it in a linen bread bag. I put it on the counter. It stays fresh for that first couple of days, you know, and then it's as it starts to dry out a little bit, it just dries out. It doesn't mold. And so eventually I'll use it for toast and then French toast and then breadcrumbs. Croutons. Yeah.
0: That's great because I've been baking sourdough and I have these beautiful bowls, but they don't last unless I really wrap them in saran wrap, which I don't love. So
1: I'm going to do this too now. <laughs> right. So what I end up doing is putting them in one of our cotton produce bags and sticking it in the freezer. And first cut it into slices and then pull them out one slice at a time. There's not a hurry about eating it up. But But I would would like like to not have to freeze it, like to have it out for a couple of days and know it's not going to get all hard and dry. So I am so excited about this. I hadn't heard about the antimicrobial aspect of linen. I had heard about that it has a healing quality Mm. to it. I didn't know if that was like science or tradition or what, but yeah.
2: I think that might be related to that same idea because it was also used for bandages uh, because of that antibacterial, antimicrobial qualities, right? It it inhibits infection because it doesn't let bacteria grow in a wound.
1: That's just amazing. I didn't know that. (laughs) Nature's amazing. (laughs) So it sounds like you're like really evolved in terms of a zero waste kitchen. What are some of the issues you haven't worked out yet? Well, well bread bags because I don't bake. So okay. yeah. <laughs> so good for you, Emma. You <laughs> mean <laughs> what you do with the bread that you buy.
2: Yeah, bread that I buy, you know, comes in. It's a challenge to always buy your bread, not in a plastic bag. You know, I mean it can be done.
0: Like at the market, maybe I feel like I've seen at the farms where you can buy directly and say, like, "Please
2: no bag, maybe mm-hmm. right or at a bakery. And you can in a bakery department, you can buy like the loose rolls and things some places. But that's probably my biggest challenge is I bring loads of bread into the house that come in plastic bags. And then I hate the plastic bags because you just get condensation in there in your bread molds. So I'm always sticking a linen napkin inside the plastic bag to absorb the moisture and wick it away from my bread. Mm-hmm. That's really my biggest challenge. Um, oh, the little plastic lids on everything. Yes. Mm-hmm. Even like a, you can get a waxed paper box of cream and it has a stupid little plastic lid on it. I What's know. up with that?
1: I know. <laughs> and what yeah. about like condiment jars? <sighs> I started making condiments, to a degree, I mean, you know, ketchup is hard. <laughs> ketchup is is quite a process. <laughs> Mustard's easy.
2: Mayonnaise, is mayonnaise really is
1: super easy. easy. I don't know if you've discovered that. We have a recipe in our little book that's like literally takes less than one minute, and it's delicious. Have you ever done that?
2: I have. I haven't done it in a long time because I can buy a mayonnaise, an organic mayonnaise, in a glass jar at my yes. co-op.
1: Yeah, and then. Oh, uh, what else? Yeah, there's so many things, like little refrigerator things that are just plastic. But,
2: yeah, I feel like I've really mastered the art of food storage, and even freezing. Like a couple of years ago, I was finally like, "I'm just gonna freeze things in glass." And yeah.
1: I freeze, I freeze a lot, and I and in glass, you know, in ball jars. I do it too. You just have to learn how not full to get it, <laughs> so it doesn't exactly. break. Just like if you don't go above that shoulder thing, it's usually okay. Yeah. On the jar. I freeze berries and all kinds of stuff in ball jars. You know, then you run into the thing about freezer space, but, you know. I just love thinking about
0: the several decades, maybe not several, but the few decades there were of like domestic housewives in modern day America making food, storing it before the plastic storage. so before Ooh. before that, I don't know how much leisure time and extra food there was around a store. But there was you know, what what is it, 30s, 40s, 50s, Were there I was, think
1: refrigeration became really common like in the twenties and thirties. Yeah, and is refrigeration, that right? We might be way off there. Yeah. But I love thinking and like when you go
0: to, you know, flea market and antiquing, all of the glass food storage stuff yeah. is so interesting. And even because it's really kind of impossible, I find now to find like modern made glass that has zero like silicone or plastic even like the clippy things that clip over and we have a couple from my grandma you know where the the glass like fits inside in the lid I just find that so fascinating and I love thinking about how just plastic free people were just because
1: it didn't exist yet and they did it <laughs> I know I was thinking about that on the way over here like it's, and it hasn't been that long it's been very yeah. recent I would say around the time of the end of the World War II, when the chemical industries didn't have to build supplies for chemical warfare anymore, and they turned their attention to more domestic things like, you know, agriculture is a big one, and I think the production of plastics. And then it was all just marketed to us like, hey, your life has gotten so much easier Mm -hmm. because of all these things. And boy, you know, we bought it hook, line, and sinker, and now here we are, and that's why... You know, we like to say beware of that concept of convenience and just think about and like what the discussion we just had about how convenient is that <laughs> for you down the road? Yeah, I like to say the,
2: the bad news is that we created really big problems in a really short period of time. And the good news is that we created really big problems in a really short period of time. Maybe we can undo them.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I like to say we're now working on solutions to our solutions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So do you have any specific, I want to hear more about
0: your master zero waste kitchen storage plan. So besides your things that you make your linen things for your company, do you have any like weird kind of hard to find stored? Like maybe do you have any vintage stuff or what else have you like struggled with that you've like
2: found the solution that might be a little offbeat? Well, I don't know if this is offbeat because it seems so normal to me, but my go-to a hundred percent favorite to solutions is the bowl on the plate on top of the bowl. Yeah. Like it is so simple. It is so available. It requires, you know, like nothing it's two seconds. You're like, Oh, that plate fits over this bowl (laughs) done and done. Yeah. And then on top of that, a piece of cut fruit cut side down. Yeah. Oh, because the peel preserves it right so if you put the fat side down on a plate you're done
1: you're my twin (laughs) (laughs) the hilarious thing about this is my husband who's all about food storage (laughs) I had to convince him that that plate over the bowl thing was okay he thought it wasn't airtight enough but you know after a while now he's used to it (laughs) and the the fruit down on top of that plate that's on the bowl (laughs) You know, stacking in the fridge. To him, that was just not taking the time to store things. And I'm mm-hmm. just like,
2: that is storage. Well, that's funny because those two things I learned from a, I had an Irish writer staying with me for five weeks, like 10 years ago. And he didn't like, quote, put food away, right? I would open the fridge and there'd be like half a cucumber sitting there. Uh-huh. And I'd be like, it's not wrapped, it's not closed, it's not in anything. But you know, I'd pull it out and I'd cut like a tiny sliver off the end and like eat the rest, and it was fine. And I was
1: like, oh.
2: And you didn't have it.
1: <laughs> you weren't standing there holding a big old piece of saran wrap. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh. And like gonna... meant
2: that somebody had to go. And, you know, drill for oil, get it out of the ground, process it into a spun polymer, put it into a roll, make a carton, make a serrated cutting thing, put it in a truck, truck it to the grocery store, make me go to work to earn the money to pay for it. I'm like, what is convenient about this?
1: Right. And (laughs) instead you have a tiny sliver of a cucumber that goes in your compost. Right. And feeds the soil. Oh my gosh. It is such a no brainer. And like, you know, people might say, oh, but you're wasting food. No,
2: not really. No. Think about all the sort of carbohydrates it takes to produce a piece of saran wrap, right? No. If you think food is carbohydrates, right?
1: You just, you know, the skin of the thing is preserving the food for me. And the little tiny end that I might have to cut off is food for the soil. So there right. you go.
2: Let's see. What are my other master plan? I mean, the ball jar is my friend. I put cheese in a jar. I put everything in a jar. If I can't, if
1: I'm like, what do I do with it? I put it in a jar. Mm-hmm. I use rubber bands a lot. Right. Yeah. To, you know, reseal things that are inevitably in plastic. But, you know, instead of like where once we might have wrapped up the whole thing in a saran wrap, we just mm-hmm. use the, the wrapping that's already there. hmm Clothespins are good for that too, Mm -hmm.
2: to close the bags.
1: Yeah, And then,
2: you know, the biggest way to reduce waste in a kitchen is to compost, which I guess, so that's a little bit about redefining waste as a resource. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, compost, like leaf litter, food scraps, we think of them as garbage. We think of them as waste, but they're not. They're actually a resource. They just need to be redirected. Here in Philadelphia, we have now, I think, three, maybe even four residential compost pickup services. Really great. Like, it's like $15 a month and they'll pick up, they just come pick up your bucket once a week. And
1: can you put anything in it or do you have to separate stuff? You can put anything in it. I mean,
2: (laughs) they're not going to take my linen scraps. That's a whole nother story. We could talk about my vermiculture (laughs) linen Uh experiment. Like there's limits, but they take pretty much anything. Yeah. Any common food waste.
0: And when you do go to the grocery store, or I guess you mentioned co-op, do you go in there with your, all your jars and your linen bags and
2: everything? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Sometimes I forget them and then I use paper bags, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I don't feel as bad about. I also, there are uses for those paper bags. So I never buy paper towels. And so the paper bags are good. Like if I make, if I have something greasy that I need to drain, I'll put it on just the paper bag. I remember my grandmother doing that. You wouldn't buy paper for your kitchen because that costs money. I mean, paper towels, it's just, you're throwing money away. But my grandmother was way too frugal for that. She would never have done that. You just had a paper bag and that's what you use to sop up grease.
1: Yeah, that's what we do with our bacon in the morning. Yeah, and I love paper bags so much. I'm even kind of stingy with them. Like <laughs> this is a really good bag. I'm not sure I want to use it for that. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's there's some really great bags. <laughs> yeah. The
2: other thing is that I wildly put out my trash in an unlined garbage can. Oh, and,
1: you um, rebel, you. I know. <laughs> And they take it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. What is it with the trash bags? They have paper lawn and leaf bags. Why can't we use those for trash? We can. We can. We can. can. But, you know, you're the super (laughs) odd neighbor on the block if you do that. Because animals (laughs) might come and, you know, and if they do, then just pick it up and put it in another paper bag. (laughs)
2: It's all marketing, you know, I just say like, I don't know, Mary, we're probably about the same age. Yeah. I believe that there was this era of knowing in mm-hmm. the seventies where we already knew all this, right? Oh, yeah. None of this news. And then the oil companies had a better marketing campaign. Mm-hmm. So they won. So the good news is with technology now, and a lot of the creatives who are really dedicated to this way of living, we're really good at marketing. So I think we have the better marketing campaign.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And I think it's growing. And speaking to that, that like segues right into a question I was going to ask you. Since you've been doing this business, how do you feel like the awareness has grown in the interest? And how do you think the pandemic year affected it, if at all? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Like, when you first started this out, You know, where people are like, huh, you know, you're going to take my Ziplocs away from me or just talk about it.
2: I think there's sort of two answers to that question. I feel like people are much more aware of the alternatives to this sort of extractive product-driven, consumer-driven lifestyle. And that may be true. And it may just be that I live in a bubble.
1: Yeah.
2: But even if it's that I live in a bubble, I am sure that the bubble is much fuller. There are more people in this bubble. So it may not be big enough yet, but there are more people are at the party. So that feels really good. (laughs) Yeah. And what happens now, more people are talking about it. And it's become much more in the mainstream conversation. That I think it's good. I think it's a double-edged sword, though I think it won't lose impact because of that, right? I hope that it won't lose impact because of that. Once things get into the mainstream conversation, we have to be more and more conscious of how we choose our words. Yeah. So we know that we're saying like, I know since I started this business, the word sustainable
1: yeah.
2: has become a buzzword and it's used for greenwashing and mm-hmm. it's lost mm-hmm. its impact. So now it's important to talk about that sustainability is out of necessity regenerative. And so now we're talking about regenerative and I'm already thinking about how another way to say that so that if mm-hmm. it loses impact, we're ready.
0: <laughs> yeah, because it's these things are so nuanced and there's so many layers to it. But as things become mainstream and more people know about it, then for some reason what happens is things become like sound bites and buzzy, like you said. And things just want to be, or yeah, people need it to be, distilled and drilled down and sometimes you just like can't distill some of this stuff
1: well it's like you know years ago in the earlier days of the organic food movement the word natural and we still battle with that one mm-hmm. yep. you know natural really doesn't mean anything and, You're right it means nothing <laughs> and guess what <laughs> organic doesn't either you know, you only know if food has been grown organically using organic methods, if it's USDA certified organic, Mm -hmm. you can put organic on anything. Is that alarming? Mm -hmm. It is. Well, right. Transparency
2: is really important. Yeah. I think it's, that's really important to me. And I try regularly to do the hard posts, the ones that make me really uncomfortable.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: The ones where I admit that, I haven't achieved everything I'm going for. And the ones where I talk about the money, it's important to talk about the money because you know, I have a, my marketing, my brand, my look is aspirational in some ways. It's attainable and it's aspirational and it always looks like I'm thriving, <laughs> uh, but the money of it's hard. And that is part of the conversation about sustainability and regeneration is that businesses like mine struggle financially and that it's important to understand business and scale. Like my business is just shy of getting to the size it needs to be to really sustain operations and to pay myself and Haley, my chief operating officer, a living wage. But my business is just big enough that there's no way for me to do it alone. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important to bring that to the table so I do try really hard to say the hard things so that this awareness that's building around the movement can be complete.
1: Mm. Oh, we hear you. Let me tell you, we hear you. Same boat. And yeah. <laughs> and it always it circles back around it. Like you're talking about, you know, the the presentation looks very mm. aspirational, but there's always this breakdown like this product that you promise and you've explained your mission and your goals and all the, the reasons why you've made this product the way it is. And it costs this amount of dollars. And it's like, what? I'm I'm not going to pay that. <laughs> and so I think we, we talk about that so much that I feel like it's getting better out there. I think I think if people are getting it a little more, the sole objective of offering a product is not to offer it to the customer for the least possible amount of money for them, but to make it sustainable for, for the everybody. the least amount of harm for everyone involved. Least amount of harm and to make it sustainable as possible for everybody all the way up the line, starting with the soil. Yeah. Love that. I think, too, a lot about how
2: I have the privilege of being able to do what I do because of generational privilege. hmm mm-hmm. But I've never made more than $30,000 in a year in my whole Mm -hmm. life. And that's like a real number that people go, what? Mm -hmm. You know, (laughs) I think a lot about how people with similar earning potential to mine say, but I need the cheap thing Mm -hmm. because otherwise I can't afford it. Mm -hmm. And I say yes and no, because that cheap thing is keeping you poor. Yeah. The system that provides you with that cheap thing is dependent on somebody being poor. It's dependent yeah. on someone being exploited. And so less things, but pay more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're really, you know what we're talking about, ladies. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a revolution. We it's- just had this
0: conversation. We had we aired a special episode on Juneteenth with our good friend, Tony, who's a historian on uh, the Underground Railroad specifically. And we talked about right? Around emancipation when the slaves were freed. But the thing that was happening where a lot of enslaved people were staying on and receiving wages, but then their clothing and their food and their housing was was taken out of those wages. And he was kind of walking us through that. And then we were kind of going, that's where the term the company store comes from. And then we were kind of like, whoa, that's kind of the entire lie. Like, this is what you can afford. So buy this. So the whole concept we're of all trapped. Yeah, we're trapped by this economic system. And yes, we are.
1: And we're brainwashed thinking that we're entitled to the cheapest, the least expensive thing, the cheapest possible thing. And, and that that's it's our, our right. right. And it's very right. politically incorrect to talk about, you know, sustainable products and everything, because inevitably you get people going, not everybody can afford that. You can't talk about that. It's inequitable. I'll tell you what's inequitable is slaves making your clothes. Right. What's inequitable is the school to prison
2: pipeline and the free labor source that that creates. Right. Exactly. Used in textiles. I mean, like textile companies use prison labor to produce products in this country. So made in America. Oh. And mean made in prison.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if it's cheap, if you've got a a $10 t-shirt, you can be darn sure mm-hmm. that that's not made by a person who's makes a livable wage who has access to good health care education yeah. all that kind of stuff no that is a person that's doing that because they have to so that you can buy cheap
2: there's actually a word for this in several other languages none of which i know but <laughs> the concept is cheap is dear yes as right. dear as inexpensive cheap is dear
1: Yes. And there's a book you got to read this. It's the history of the world and seven cheap things. But he says, and I've quoted this a few times on the podcast, cheap is never a bargain, sort of the same idea. Yeah. And he goes way back like this has been going on a very long time. This is not just us and our mm-hmm. industrial society. This is like, way, wait, this is the beginning of civilization. This is agriculture. This is building mm-hmm. of the pyramids. I mean, everybody knows this. It's the wheel. (laughs) I I
2: blame it on the wheel.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, Heidi, tell us about your community collaborations.
2: So my longest standing and, and really most meaningful community collaboration is my work with Henry Got Crops, which is the Weaver's Way Farm CSA. They inspired my business. They feed me for 24 weeks out of the year and this year i'm spending 4 hours a week there in exchange for my food working oh, wow. in the school
0: amazing yeah.
2: that's the 4 amazing. hours is nothing
0: that's great it's really yeah.
2: fun for you yeah so they both like inspire me and they nourish me and i call it Nina's magic farms Nina is the farm manager there and she's an incredible connector of people which has been just magical for me and it also has put me in direct contact with the soil on a regular basis, which has been just much better than any therapy I could ever have gotten, yes. <laughs> Just like actually being in the dirt. Yeah, it's, it's good. And then there's the ones that have grown out of that with other growers in the region. So growers I can learn from, growers I can support. And then the Flax Project yes. is my pandemic baby with Emma DeLong at Mihai Farm. And it's incredible, this project. So Emma and I met to talk about doing a natural dye collaboration with Indigo She Grows and linen products that I make. And literally within an hour of meeting, she had offered up an eighth of an acre on her farm to grow flax for linen. And in April of 2020, we hand broadcast 13 pounds of seed and with the exact thought of let's just toss this seed on the ground and see what happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we are now uh, you know in our second growing season. We have I think eight other growers who are growing seed that we sourced from Fiber Revolution which is a group out in Oregon who are working to revitalize the flax into linen industry in the United States. And they are now our consultants. We are working with them as well as Altogether Now Pennsylvania, which is a 501c3 here, connecting urban and rural supply and demand. And we are on Track sort of working toward getting an operational mill that could process flax from field into spinable fiber
0: oh, wow. in Pennsylvania. So, if you started growing last season, do you have any finished linen
2: yet? We don't have any finished linen, but we have some spinnable fiber. And I have started actually with Nina from the other farm. Nina and I and our friend Cassandra, who is a spinner, have started experimenting with spinning it. We're actually carting the toe in with wool and spinning that way because it's easier.
1: <laughs> oh, Lindsay, isn't that Lindsay Woolsey? Isn't that what you mm-hmm. used to call that? Oh, yeah. wow. So we're getting
0: there. Yeah, that's amazing. Have you connected with any historical, cause you're a costumer. Like we know some ladies at Mount Vernon who know a lot
2: about this process. Yeah. So yes. And in 2020, we sourced our seed from Landis Valley Farm and Museum in Lancaster. Oh, cool. Okay. They imported from the Netherlands and this year they planted the seed we got from the women in Oregon, which is so fiber revolution Shannon and Angela are also part of Pacific Northwest Fibershed. And they grew out 13 acres of fiber flax for seed with a farmer in Montana. And so they had like, I forgot how many tons of fiber seed. That's the first that's been produced in the U.S. in decades. And so we sourced from them this year. And this year, Landis Valley planted that seed next to the seed they've been using for the past, I don't know, 20 or 30 years And they're comparing the two crops. So we're doing a lot of really exciting trials this year. Cool. With the growing of the flax.
1: I'm so excited. I want to be involved. I've got my own little experimental flax bed. It's about six by eight feet. (laughs) Perfect size. It (laughs) grew up. It it bloomed. It's beautiful. And it has little seed heads on it. And now I'm like, now what?
2: When the bottom third of the plant is golden. Uh Uh-huh. You pull it up by the roots and lay it back down on the
1: ground for the redding. Yeah. (gasps) Okay. What if it's like raining like crazy? It's fine. It's fine. Okay.
2: The redding requires moisture. Okay. So it can take anywhere from two to four weeks, depending on how much moisture you get. Look, I managed to do it just watching a YouTube video because you know, it's the pandemic year, right?
1: I know, I was going to say, I just need to get on YouTube and like there'll probably be several of them and they'll be a little bit different, but I'll get a general idea. And I I, I saw y'all's video of y'all doing it, I guess last year. Mm -hmm. It's just so exciting. So anyway, we want to be involved in your FLAX project somehow. We want to support and talk about it. And I mean, it's just like totally what we're about. Upcoming episode. Upcoming episode and-
2: yeah, the Fox project is magical. It's just so many people are just galvanized around it. It's a very seductive plant, it's beautiful, and the process of once you read it and you get this what looks like dirty straw and then you break it and it literally you watch it become golden. As soon as somebody sees it, they just go Whoa, I want to do that.
1: <laughs> so have you thought of when you get to the point, like probably wouldn't be this season, but where you have a sizable crop and having an event where people come and actually do this, do the combing thing mm-hmm. together. Could you ever see that happening? Yes, it's happening.
2: We did a tiny one.
1: Yeah. And
2: then at that one, we met these wonderful women from Cicate, which is a Latinx after school program and arts collective in Norristown, Pennsylvania, and they're now growing flax. Their flax is flowering. I went to go visit it yesterday. Oh, wow. And um, they're growing for soil remediation. They have lead contaminated soil that they want to grow food in. So they're growing this year's crop for soil remediation. And it's being tested the soil before and after, as well as the fiber. Once it's processed, is going to be tested by the labs at Villanova University.
0: Heidi, what does the good dirt mean to you? literally or metaphorically.
2: So the good dirt is the news in the neighborhood that you want to know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It is the news that connects you to the community and that lets you know where you fit within the community. And so at its best, I think it's like sharing ideas and building community and the double entendre of that, phrase brings to mind for me the connections that tree roots create and how you know now we talk about the research has finally told people that the trees communicate with one another to create a network in the earth that creates fertile soil so Ah, that's
1: that's wonderful so what would you like to leave our audience with about yourself the work that you do or just anything you want to tell us
2: About myself, I would say, you know, I think of myself as a creative and that I would say to people who wonder how I got where I got, I got here by following my curiosity and by creatively problem solving. And I would invite people to try that. I think there's a bit of a crisis of lack of that in our culture. And it's super fun and it can be really productive. So I would I would invite that. About my work, I want more than anything for my work to be accessible. So I love to create beauty. And I know I really edit everything and make it look very gorgeous, but I want people to understand that beauty is accessible and they can bring it into their lives and that it's not delicate.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Beauty can be durable and also that. I think my work is urgent. Yes, I think we need to embrace the urgency of making these sorts of changes in our lifestyles.
1: Well yeah. said. Well said.
0: I also love what you said about following your curiosity to solve problems. I think that just relates to everything. Like part of the reason why we're in this mess is because we've outsourced our own agency in so many ways. And I think part of the process of this healing and regeneration is stop outsourcing that stuff, even our own thoughts, you know, stop looking for someone else to tell us what to do, what to buy, how to live, how we're going to be happy, because it's it's in inside of all of us. We already have all the answers. We just have to pay attention a little more and listen.
1: And along those lines, you know, if something doesn't feel right to us, but the powers that be, or the marketing, or whatever, says, No, really, it's okay. Mm-hmm. This is okay. But you're thinking, Is it really? <laughs> Listen to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think we've outsourced our common sense to a huge degree. <laughs> and, you know, go back to the first piece of plastic. Like, this is going to be around forever. But, mm-hmm. you know, you're using it right now, it's really going to be helpful to you. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with that? Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Heidi. This has been so wonderful. It's been really, really interesting, and I've loved it. And we have much more to follow up on. But in the meantime, thank you so much for joining us today, Heidi. Thank
2: you for having me. It was really my pleasure. It's been wonderful to talk with you.
1: Thank you. We'll be talking to you soon. Thank you, Heidi, for all your practical tips and good information also your vision and your perseverance for this issue really really inspirational and if you are here for the first time welcome to the good
0: dirt we're lady farmer you can find us online at LadyFarmer.com or on instagram at we are lady farmer we have an online membership community called the almanac and we are currently not open for enrollment but we will be soon welcome to the family and we're here every friday at the good dirt we'll see you next week
1: Bye, everybody.